All right, let's open our Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter eight, verses 28 through 34. That's our text, Matthew chapter eight, verses 28 through 34. The topic we're gonna find there is this. Jesus casts a legion of demons out of two men and they go into a herd of 2,000 swine which then hurtle themselves over a cliff to their death. The title of our message, well, here's another swine mess you've gotten us into. (laughs) Let's have a word of prayer. Father, you're so good to us and uh, Lord, it was... Isn't it neat, Lord, that we can talk about Pastor Chuck going home to be with you and have an absolute assurance based on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that he is absent from his body and is present with the Lord. And we claim that promise as well, Lord, as your your children and as the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you for letting us be here today. It's a privilege. It's also an opportunity for us to hear you speak to us by your spirit, and so guide us through this text, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. I admit Hollywood has ruined me. I can never think of an exorcism without flashing back in my mind to the 1973 feature film, The Exorcist, which scared me to death before I was a Christian. MoviePhone.com lists a few weird facts surrounding The Exorcist. Mercedes McCambridge provided the demonic voice of Regan, the demon-possessed girl. She achieved the gravelly tone by chain-smoking and forcing herself to vomit up a mixture of raw eggs and mushed apples. So if you want to sound like a demon at your haunted house... Get some Marlboros and uh, drink some eggs, I guess. But anyway, theater screening the movie came equipped with exorcist barf bags. Post-production for the film was done at 666 Fifth Avenue in New York City. I kid you not. Now, there are several other weird facts, but one in particular captured my attention. The sounds that are made when the demon leaves the little girl's body come from an audio clip of pigs being herded to their slaughter. In our text, Jesus encounters a legion of demons possessing two men. He ends up sending them into a herd of 2,000 pigs who promptly stampede over a cliff into the sea and to their death. The exorcist is fiction and not at all a proper representation of God's authority over demons. In the biblical account we will read today, all Jesus had to do was say go and the demons were cast out. What's even more amazing and at the same time baffling about this story is that once these men are made whole, their neighbors confront Jesus and tell him to go and he leaves. We're gonna talk about Jesus' authority over demons but also his humility among men. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, Jesus has the authority to tell demons to go and number two, Jesus has the humility to be told by men to go. Let's take a look at Jesus' authority over the demons first in verses 28 through 32. Now, Matthew has previously reported Jesus casting out demons, but this is the first detailed account in his gospel. It's what we might call a classic possession in which demons are inhabiting people, causing them to do weird things. It's the kind of account that makes us wonder why we don't see more of this today. Well, the truth is, classic demon possession doesn't give the devil the attention that it used to. We are prone to label everything as mental illness or as some syndrome, and the effect is that an actual case of demon possession goes unnoticed. 
Uh, and so the devil doesn't get any theater from it. He doesn't get any press from it. And if there's anything about the devil you need to know is he wants credit. Now, when the devil does get mentioned as the source of some tragedy, such as a mother murdering her children, people don't believe for a minute that the devil made her do it. They, they ignore that kind of uh, thing. Now, while demon possession may be down, there is an absolute explosion all over the globe of occult and supernatural activities that are sourced by Satan. I would add to that the UFO phenomena, most of which is certainly demonic. And so when people say, well, how come we don't see demonic possession uh, more like we did in the New Testament? Maybe we do, maybe we don't, but we're certainly seeing more demonic activity than ever before at any point in the history of the human race. Now, verse 28 begins, he says, when he had come to the other side, to the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way. You also find this account in the Gospels written by Luke and Mark. As usual, Matthews is the shortest. He was a great editor of material only putting in what he needed his readers to understand. He left out a lot of details. Since he was presenting Jesus to the Jews as their promised Messiah, he concentrated on the Lord's authority over demons. It was one of the expected credentials of the Messiah. So if you're a Jew reading the Gospel of Matthew, one of your questions would be, well, what kind of authority does this Jesus have in the supernatural realm over demons? Because they expected the Messiah to have absolute authority over them. And so Matthew gives this incredible account and, and does it in an edited way so that he can make that point. Now, in the other Gospels, only one man is mentioned, but that's not a contradiction. Pam might ask me later today if I saw a particular person at church. If I say yes, it doesn't mean I didn't see a lot of other people at church too. And so having more detail doesn't mean uh, anything. Uh, it's just that Matthew was concentrating on uh, different aspects of it. Now, there's a dispute among Bible scholars as to whether the country of the Gergesenes was Jewish or Gentile. Probably your Bible has several different spellings or different ways of putting that. Um, it's either alternate spellings of the same place or it's different ways of, re of referring to an area, just like we would talk about Central California or the San Joaquin Valley or Kings County or, you know, so where one person might say, well, this happened in Kings County, we might say, well, no, it actually it happened in Armona, you know, that kind of a thing. And so it's, it's not a problem, but in Matthew's gospel, in my New King James Bible, it says it's the country of the Gergesenes and the, this, the dispute is, whether it was a Jewish or a Gentile region. It's sort of important, but only in a secondary way, because if it was Jewish territory, then they were raising pigs in contradiction to the Levitical law. The message of the story isn't about Jews breaking the law, and there are reasons to think it was a predominantly Gentile region in which a few Jews happened to live, and so we're gonna go with that conclusion for our purposes this morning. Now, these two demon-possessed men had been driven out of town, and they took up residence in the tombs, meaning the caves in which people were buried. They possessed supernatural strength, and if you were smart, you avoided traveling near the cemetery. When you were, I don't know if in this area, because I didn't grow up here, but down in San Bernardino, there was always a weird place, like a, a house where a witch lived. 
Now, no witch actually lived there, but there was always around Halloween, you know, and in San Bernardino, it was the witch Maloof. I don't know if that was her last name, but she had an alley behind her house, and, and if you were brave, you would drive. I never drove my car through there because you ended up with flat tires and broken windshields because whoever did live there didn't appreciate what was going on, and they would, you know, uh, do weird things to you, and it would, uh, per, of course, they didn't know it was perpetuating the myth, but you'd, you'd go over there, and, and this witch would, you know, come out, I saw her, you know, and stuff, it's just some lady with rollers probably getting her mail, but, uh, you know, so if you were living in this region, you just didn't go along the road that was near the cemetery, uh, unless you were, you know, trying to fool your friends or something like that, and say, hey, would you, you mind taking a walk? You know, just go that way. And these guys would come out. One of the gospels says they were naked. Uh, and they would break any chains. They had supernatural strength. Early version of the Hulk, uh, you know, kind of a thing. And so, um, do you ever wonder, how does the Hulk, does he get spandex, uh, you know, his pants? Especially the, the lousy Hulk movies where he's like 80 feet tall. I mean, come on, really. Uh, anyway, so... Um, it's, it was a, a, a difficult situation, obviously. Now, let me give you one more fact from the Gospel of Mark. In that account, the demons give their name as legion, for there were many of them possessing these two guys. How many? Well, a Roman legion was 6,000 men. Maybe there were fewer demons than 6,000, but there were a lot because in a minute, they're gonna be sent into a herd of 2,000 pigs. Jesus landed and when he had come ashore, it says there met him these two demon-possessed men. One aspect of this story that's easy to overlook is that this was an attack by a legion of demons upon Jesus and his followers. Demon activity is often described in military terms in the Bible, and here we see a legion of them going to confront Jesus as he lands on their shore in their territory. The devil knew Jesus was coming. The unusually extreme storm as Jesus was traveling by boat, as we saw last time we were together, seems to have been satanic in origin. Having failed to kill Jesus by the storm, the devil meets him with a legion of demons. Or perhaps this was an attack by Jesus upon demons. He landed on the beach. It's like an invading army coming into an area, it's like a D-Day situation where this boat pulls up and Jesus gets out of the boat and makes his landing and secures the beachhead so that he can press on into that territory. By the way, if you were following Jesus, either on the boat or as we saw last time, there were other little boats following him uh, from across the other side, you would be mind blown. He landed in Gentile territory and was doing battle with two notoriously demon-possessed men. Never a dull moment around Jesus. He's not exactly what everybody was expecting. In fact, he was nothing like anybody was expecting. For the Jewish Messiah, he was certainly pushing the envelope. Now, where do demons come from anyway? The Bible explains that Satan, whose name is Lucifer, is a created angel who rebelled against God, wanting to be God, or at least like God, a third of the created angels in heaven followed him in his rebellion. These fallen angels are the demons. Sometime later, the devil went into the Garden of Eden, disguised as the serpent to tempt Eve. Adam and Eve sinned by believing that they too could be as God. God's creation was subjected to sin and corruption and death. 
The devil is now called the god of this world and the prince of the power of the air. He rules over the demons as principalities and powers as the rulers of the darkness of this current world. Together they desire to rob and to kill and to destroy human beings. That's their uh, mission statement as it were. If they had a website, that would be their mission statement. We're the demons to rob, to kill, and to destroy. Uh, They can certainly do it by possessing someone, but they have many other sinister strategies by which they may destroy lives. The Bible makes it clear that God is victorious over the devil in this cosmic conflict. Not that he will eventually be victorious, but that he already has won the victory. In the Garden of Eden, God told Adam and Eve he would himself enter the human race to destroy the devil by his own death and resurrection. He did just that in the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man who died on the cross and rose again. In many human conflicts, many human wars, the war can be over, but many enemy combatants fight on anyway. It should not surprise us that the devil won't go quietly even though he's been defeated. The devil and his demons fight on, but it's interesting, it's clear that they know they are defeated and have a limited time to rob and to kill and to destroy. Notice what they say in verse 29. Suddenly they cried out saying, what have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Demons know that Jesus is the unique God-man that he's God come in human flesh. They know prophecy, including future prophecy. We would say that demons have better theology than most liberal Christians. They know all these things. And they reveal two incredible things. First, they know they're absolutely and unavoidably headed for eternal torment. They know it. And second, they know they have a limited period of time before the Lord sends them to torment. The time they are referring to is at the end of the thousand-year kingdom of heaven on the earth after Jesus' second coming and before the creation of the new earth. The devil and his demons will once for all and forever be thrown alive into the lake of fire that was created for them for their eternal punishment. I've told you this before, but it bears repeating. There will be no partying in hell. The devil is not the ruler of a kingdom in hell, nor are his demons tormentors in hell, but rather all of them are tormented. And so all of those kind of um, literary and movie ideas that we have that the devil rules in hell and that his demons are the tormentors, no, the, the lake of fire, which is hell, it was created for the devil and his angels, not for them to rule, but for them to be punished for eternity. Now, verse 30, now a good way off from them, there was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged him saying, if you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. I was gonna do some chain smoking this morning and try and do the voice, but I didn't think it'd go over very well. (laughs) The demons knew Jesus was going to cast them out of the two men. It's what happens whenever Jesus is in the presence of the demon possessed. I mean, it's it's a foregone conclusion. They asked permission to be sent into a herd of pigs. Now, a lot of speculation surrounds this request, and that's all it is. For example, people speculate that demons don't like to be disembodied and desire to have a host. I can't really see that from this. 
And we should be careful drawing conclusions about why demons do what they do, except that they do it in rebellion against God in order to rob and to kill and to destroy. More likely, they feared that Jesus might incarcerate them in a demonic prison to await their final torment. In Luke's account, they mention not wanting to be thrown into the abyss. The Apostle Peter in his letters, as well as Jude, and the revelation of Jesus Christ indicate that some especially wicked demons are already incarcerated in a prison in the abyss. And so these demons were saying, man, what are you doing here? It isn't time. We know we're headed for torment, but it's not the proper time. Are you going to incarcerate us? They're freaked out. And so they say, hey, send us into this herd of pigs. Now, they knew that the Lord wouldn't allow them to go into other people. The closest living creatures were a herd of swine a good way off, so that was their only play. Plus, they may have thought they could sneak in one final blow to the people in that region by destroying the source of their livelihood. Remember, all that demons want to do is cause harm of all kinds at any cost. Why did Jesus answer this demon prayer? Well, we're not sure if it's why he did, but because he did, we're gonna see something incredible in the reaction of the town. Verse 32, and he said to them, go. So when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. Demons might like bacon, but bacon doesn't like demons. The pigs perished. Not the demons, they can't drown. In fact, we have to say that it seems from scripture that neither angels nor demons can be killed. In Luke chapter 20, Jesus references the fact that angels do not die. They are eternal beings. Jesus had, and he still has, total authority over demons. He didn't need to speak the word go. He spoke it so the witnesses could see what was going on, that he was exercising authority over the demons. Going into the herd of pigs also benefited the witnesses spiritually because they could see the result of the demons leaving their human hosts and going into the animal hosts. In other words, they, you could say, hey, an exorcism just took place. I saw it. What do we mean you saw it? You saw the demons? No, but I saw the result of it. Jesus spoke a word, and the next thing you know, this herd of pigs went crazy and perished over the cliff. And so they could give testimony that a genuine exorcism had taken place, not some phony uh, sideshow thing. Now, you and I as believers in Jesus and his ambassadors on the earth, we have his delegated authority, do we not? We too can say go if we are ever confronted by demons. We don't need a crucifix or holy water or special prayers and incantations. Apparently, there are some demons who are more difficult than others to deal with. In those cases, Jesus said we must be fasting and praying not learning Latin spells that have been lost to people for centuries. You understand where I'm going with all this. Where, man, I, I love a good exorcist movie. I mean, you know, just, but all of the crazy stuff that, that you see on television in the movies with the crucifix and holy water. Holy water is a weird situation, by the way. Just Google holy water and it'll blow your mind. Uh, and, and so, you know, I mean, what if you get caught you know, out in demon territory without, a, without some holy water. What are you gonna do? 
How are you going to burn the poor demon? You know, you got your crucifix and some garlic hanging around your neck. E pluribus unum, you know, or whatever. It's all become so weird. Don't be drawn to ritual exorcisms or special prayers or the identifying of territorial spirits or demanding their names. It's not biblical. None of that is biblical. You confront demons with simple but powerful and effective delegated authority, not ritual. I don't have time to go into it, but there's some guys in the New Testament book of Acts who try and cast out a demon by ritual and the demon says, what? Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you guys? And the demon tears them up. That's a ritual exorcism. They're not effective. As powerful as this exorcism was, the real impact of the story is what comes next. Jesus has the humility to be told by men to go. Two men, presumably citizens of the region who had led normal lives, had become seriously demon-possessed. They were undoubtedly someone's fathers or sons or husbands. Someone must have loved them and felt their loss. But they were incurably possessed and were forced away from others, forced to haunt the tombs. Jesus stormed the beachhead and set them free from possession. The only price, 2,000 pigs. It proved too big a price to pay. Verse 33, then those who kept them fled and they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus and when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. What? That's incredulous, which is a word I can't really define but expresses perfectly how messed up this was. Think about the people of that whole city. There must have been among them many who were suffering from diseases and infirmities. In other words, there were among them many who needed healing. Then too, as far as they knew, two to 6,000 demons were still in the area on the loose, presumably looking for new human hosts. But for all that and for reasons or reason that not made clear, they asked Jesus to go. Now, it's assumed that if they were Jewish, then this episode exposed their illegal herding of swine. Maybe, but everyone already knew there were 2,000 pigs there. You can't hide 2,000 pigs. What's that noise? Nothing. What's that smell? Nothing. I mean, you can't hide 2,000 pigs. It's not a secret. It's assumed that if they were Gentile, then they had just lost their livelihood. And true, this was a huge herd worth a lot of money. The area would be hit by a recession. I mean, this was the bacon capital of, of the Roman Empire, it seems. And so they would be definitely into recession. But still, why ask Jesus to go when there would be even more needs than ever? Those might be the reasons or among the reasons for them acting the way they did, but they're not the point, at least not the point that we want to develop this morning. This is the point. In a world of spiritual conflict, where God is already victorious, but the devil fights on, when the Lord can bring help and healing, men prefer to remain in their sin and in darkness rather than to submit to the authority of God. That's what's really happening here. Jesus, Jesus destroyed the work of a legion of demons after surviving a satanic storm. He took the beach. And, and declared God's victory in that area, 100%. And these men came out and they said, we want you to go. We're perfectly happy living the way we're living. 
we don't need you. No one asked you to come here. Just why don't you go somewhere else? They'd rather take their chances without God so as not to yield their lives to the Savior. If a few of them are casualties, demon-possessed or diseased or infirm, well, that's the price you pay for being successful in pig business. I want you to expand this thought because I think it's an illustration of a greater, maybe a global truth. We've been talking a lot lately about the presence of evil, the problem of pain, wondering why since there's an almighty God who is love, bad things still happen. It's a huge argument non-believers appeal to in order to debunk the notion that there is a God who cares for them. Where's God when it hurts? Why, why is God allowing this? I suggest to you that one reason evil seems to have such free reign is that most men still tell God to go so they can continue to live in their sin in their darkness without him. He's taken the beach. He's proven his victory. And men look at that. Okay. Hmm? Yeah, why don't you just leave me alone? I'm perfectly happy living the life I'm living without you. Maybe I'll be demon-possessed. Maybe a friend of mine will get you know, into this or that. Maybe there's no hope after death, but I'm very happy living the way I'm living. Of course, when something bad does happen, when some evil befalls them, they blame God. They refuse to acknowledge that they banished him, refusing his help. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, very God of very God, who has all authority given to him, is nevertheless humble and will not force himself upon those who refuse him. Evangelists say it all the time, Jesus is standing at the door of human hearts knocking, but he won't break down the door, you must open it, letting him in. If you've ever seen that famous painting that depicts the Lord standing at the door knocking, you probably notice there is no handle on the outside. It's the artist's interpretation of the humility of Jesus needing to be invited in by the homeowner. Even though rejected and humble to retreat, however, Jesus still has compassion on those who tell him to go. In the Gospel of Mark, here's how the story ends. This is Mark 5, beginning in verse 17. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but he said, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you, how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis, that's a 10-city region there, all that Jesus had done for him, and they all marveled. They refused him, they told him to go, and he told the delivered saved man to go to them. Jesus left them a missionary. It was an early version of the great commission that we have all been given as believers. Our world has fallen. It is temporarily subject to the prince of the power of the air, to the God of this world, to his legions of demons seeking to rob and to kill and to destroy. They fight on, causing all manner of mischief and terror. God already owns the victory. The devil acknowledges his defeat. He knows he has but a short time until his eternal torment. As he goes about seeking whom he may devour, Christians go into all the world with the presence of Jesus Christ. Jesus can still destroy the works of the devil, deliver men and women from his grip. He can still save them and heal them. But all too often, those he reaches out to in compassion prefer their sin and darkness to his incredible salvation. Want to blame someone for the presence of evil and the problem of pain? Look no further than non-believers who have told Jesus Christ to go. They want no part of him. 
until something bad happens and then they just want to blame him. We must therefore keep going to them right up until the time that Jesus comes for us.